When Patrick Lee Fermer walked up the hill to the Abbey of Saint-Henri de Fontenelle in northern France, seeking a quiet, cheap place in which to write, he entered a territory that was alien in a different way from the remote places he had described in his other travel books. Indeed, as he soon discovered, the monastery represented another world, one that entirely and deliberately reversed the norms of secular life. I had a similar experience when I entered a convent as a young girl. To an outsider, the life of monks and nuns seems forbidding and even perverse, but for centuries it has exerted an irresistible appeal, not only in Western Christendom, but in almost all cultures and religious traditions. The monastic life is so at odds with the outside world that it often inspires immense hostility. As Lee Firmer notes repeatedly, the ruined buildings of the great abbeys and convents of Europe recall the savagery of the kings and reformers who so repeatedly raised them to the ground. Even today, people feel affronted by the lifestyle of monks and nuns, which challenges so many of our more secular values and seems inhumane, inhuman, and joyless. Instead of seeking wealth, comfort, and material success, monks opt for poverty and do not even own their own toothbrushes. Their voluntary celibacy and renunciation of intimacy seem to violate basic human instincts in a world that lays such emphasis on family values. And hardest of all, perhaps, Though this is something Lee Fermer does not explore, they give up their freedom and personal autonomy, vowing obedience to their superiors in a way that is repugnant to the independent ethos of modernity. And yet, people continue to choose this austerity. As Lee Fermer shows, even though their abbeys were destroyed again and again, the orders always came back and resumed the disciplines that brought the monks a peace and fulfillment that they could not find in the outside world. Monasticism tells us something important about the structure of our humanity. Almost every single one of the major world traditions has developed some form of coenobitic life. Just as some people, at all times and in all cultures, have felt impelled to become dancers, poets, or musicians, others are irresistibly drawn to a life of silence and prayer. They have an unusual talent, by no means granted to all the faithful, for meditation, and they will never be satisfied unless they are able to develop and practice it assiduously. The athlete and the dancer reveal the potential of the human body. They willingly subject themselves to a painful, rigorous, and exhausting discipline, giving up many comforts and pleasures in order to learn their craft. Because of this dedication, they are able to perform physical feats that are beyond the reach of an untrained person. In the same way, the contemplative gladly submits to an equally demanding regimen, and once he or she has become adept,
manifests the full potential of the human spirit. It is significant that the monastic life follows a similar pattern all the world over. People have found, by trial and error, that certain practices are efficacious and others are not. The monk's monotonous way of life has been deliberately designed to protect them from the distractions of and the lust for novelty. They do the same things day after day. They dress alike and shun individuality and personal style. They keep almost perpetual silence so that their attention is directed within. They chant their scriptures together so that the sacred texts become a part of their inner landscape. Community life is very important because the experience of living with people whom they have not chosen and may not find congenial gradually erases the selfishness that will prevent them from attaining the transcendent experience they seek. The monastic life demands a kind of death, the death of the ego that we feed so voraciously in secular life. We are perhaps biologically programmed to self-preservation. Even when our physical survival is not in jeopardy, we seek to promote ourselves, to make ourselves liked, loved, and admired, display ourselves to best advantage, and pursue our own interests, often ruthlessly. But this self-preoccupation, all the world's religions tell us, paradoxically holds us back from our best selves. Many of our problems spring from thwarted egotism. We resent the success of others. In our gloomiest, most self-pitying moments, we feel uniquely mistreated and undervalued. We are miserably aware of our shortcomings. In the world outside the cloister, it is always possible to escape such self-dissatisfaction we can phone a friend, pour a drink, or turn on the television. But the religious has to face his or her pettiness 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. If properly and wholeheartedly pursued, the monastic life liberates us from ourselves, incrementally, slowly, and impercepti imperceptibly. Once a monk has transcended his ego, he will experience an alternative mode of being. It is an ecstasis, a stepping outside the confines of self. The ascetics of India have pursued the same goal and their way of life is remarkably similar to that of Christian monks. They designed the disciplines of yoga, for example, precisely to take the eye out of their thinking. They thus acquired a new vision, finding that it once was no longer regarded self-referentially. Even the humblest object revealed a numinous quality. Yogis train themselves to do the opposite of what comes naturally. They learn to sit without the motion that is a sign of life, as though they were statues or plants. They control their respiration, 
the most reflexive of our bodily functions, and they learn to curb the stream of rest restless thoughts that ceaselessly invade the human mind. When they have transcended the condition of normal secular consciousness, they experience, the texts tell us, the indescribable joy and liberation of nirvana. A Christian monk might say that they come into the presence of God. Christian monasticism demands a similar reversal of fundamental human instincts and expectations. On his very first evening, Lee Fermer became acutely aware of the staggering difference between life in the abbey and the world outside. The thoughts, ambitions, sounds, light, time, and mood that surround the inhabitants of a cloister are not only unlike anything to which one is accustomed, but in some curious way seem its exact reverse. The period during which normal standards recede and the strange new world becomes reality is slow and, at first, acutely painful. But after a while, when he had become accustomed to the monastic norms, Lee Fermer found that he began to feel an unfamiliar lightness and liberty. As he watched the monks going about their daily lives, Lee Fermer assumed that the dominating factor of monastic existence is a belief in the necessity and efficacy of prayer, and concluded that without this first postulate of belief, monastic life would be farcical and intolerable. I think that he was mistaken in this. It is only since the 18th century Enlightenment that the Christian West made belief, the acceptance of certain creedal propositions, the first postulate of religious life. In the West, we have developed a culture that is rational, scientific, and pragmatic. We feel obliged to satisfy ourselves that a proposition is true before we base our lives upon it, and to establish a principle to our satisfaction before we apply it. In the pre-modern period, however, in all the major world faiths, the main emphasis was not on belief but on behavior. First, you changed your lifestyle, and only then could you experience God, Nirvana, Brahman, or the Tao as a living reality. This has been the experience of monks and nuns. It is not belief, but the disciplines of the monastic life that produce in pract practitioners what Christians call faith, an apprehension of the transcendent reality of God. Doubtless, the monks that Lee Fermer met did accept the essential doctrines of the church and were convinced that their prayer was efficacious. But even though he did not share these beliefs, Lee Fermer discovered that the monastic regime changed him. When he first arrived in the abbey, he felt deeply depressed by his strange surroundings and could not sleep in his cell. But after a painful period of adaption, adaptation, he found that he slept more profoundly than he had ever done before, 
and woke full of energy and limpid freshness. Without the pressures of a hectic social and professional life, Lee Firmer found that he enjoyed an entirely new vitality and peace. Even major worries slid away into some distant limbo. The regimen, which had initially seemed so constricting, gave him a sense of absolute, godless freedom. Work became easier, and the abbey became the reverse of a tomb. A castle hanging in midair beyond the reach of ordinary troubles and vexations. As Lee Firmer listened to the monks chanting and the psalms and prayers of the divine office, he had intimations of transcendence and enlightenment. When he eventually left the abbey and returned to Paris, the secular world at first appeared an inferno of noise and vulgarity. It was as difficult to resume his ordinary life as it had been to adapt to the monastic silence and isolation. Even a limited experience of the monastic life can introduce people to the real meaning of religion far more effectively than abstract theological beliefs. In the 11th century, the Benedictine monks of Cluny, near Paris, made a massive effort to educate the laity of Europe, who were woefully ignorant of Christianity. They did not attempt to teach lay people the complicated doctrines of the church. Instead, they sent them on pilgrimage, which, under the aegis of Cluny, became a hugely popular activity. While they traveled to their holy destination, to Rome, Compostela, or a local shrine, laymen and laywomen had to live for a time like monks. The pilgrims turned their backs on their normal lives and lived a communal life. They prayed together. The hardships of the journey were a form of asceticism. They were celibate for the duration of the pilgrimage and were forbidden to fight or bear arms. The experience was designed to transform their behavior in such a way that they would intuit the deeper meaning of Christian faith. I myself experienced something similar. I did not find enlightenment in my convent because I was not suited to the religious order I had chosen. For years after ceasing to be a nun, I wanted nothing to do with religion. It was only when, after a series of career disasters, I found myself living alone and in silence while researching my book, A History of God, that the religious texts I was studying began to make sense. Theology is a form of poetry, an attempt to express the inexpressible, and you cannot read a sonnet by Shakespeare in the chatter and tumult of a party. These truths are elusive and resist easy conceptualization. You have to open yourself to a sacred text with a quiet, receptive mind. Gradually, I found that without the distraction of constant conversation, the words on the page began to speak directly to my inner self. I sympathize with Lee Firmer, when he remarked one day to the abbot what a blessed relief it was to refrain from talking all day long. Yes, the abbot replied, in the outside world, 
speech is gravely abused. Our world is even more noisy than it was in the 1950s, when Lee Fermer wrote this book. Piped music and mobile phones jangle ceaselessly, and silence and solitude are shunned as alien and unnatural. We expect instant communication and seek knowledge at the click of a mouse. We are also living at a time of competing certainties and religious stridency. It is important to realize that there are more profound and authentic ways of being relig religious. Very few of us can be contemplative nuns, nuns or mon monks, but we can learn to appreciate their way of experiencing the sacred and integrate something of this gentle, silent discipline into our own lives. This gem of a book can help us to do just that.